Well, uh, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And we come to a passage. We've been going through the book of Joel here for nearly two months. And we come to a passage that continues to press against the sensibilities of our culture and world. The prophet Joel has had a very direct message to Judah, these religious, God-fearing Jews from the southern kingdom. He said, God's people will be judged. And God has sent and will send an army of locusts and circumstance their way. Judah has been unfaithful to their promised relationship to God called the Old Covenant. And there is consequence to that sin. But, but it is not too late, we've heard Joel say in these two months. It's not too late. God is full of steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love to his people. Return to me, he says. In fact, a day will come when I will pour out my spirit and you will return to me and walk in my ways. The world around us may not struggle with that message on its face. Religious hypocrites should be held accountable. All right and good, yes. They should change. Joel now, in chapter 3, communicates God's intentions with the nations, with the world at large. The theologian, Tupac, popularized the saying, and he said this, Only God can judge me. Now, the thought in his song and, and in this idea is that don't you dare, Lakewood, you Christians, don't you dare try to make any kind of assessment and judgment on my words, actions, or life. Only God can do that. Don't judge. But when confronted with the reality of God having something to say in the scriptures as it relates to the lives that we lead, we in the world may cringe at the idea of judgment. And as God makes it clear that we will all be judged by his word, his standard and character, we start backpedaling, don't we? We posture from only God can judge me to no one can judge me. Only I am allowed to make judgment on myself. And ironically, we or the world around us may say, no one can judge me, not even God. And then in turn, judge others and God while we say that. So we are left with a question. How do Christians understand God's judgment on the world? If this is an easy question for you, then you're likely missing the mark. If you are gleeful as you read Joel 3, but you ignore the judgment that comes first upon God's people, you likely lack maturity as a Christian. The nature of this conversation is very nuanced, but clear. Christians, skeptics, and those considering Christianity have historically struggled understanding how. How is God good, benevolent, righteous, righteous, just, and, and judge ultimately? How? How is this all true? How can God in one breath communicate that he will pour out his spirit, that he'll change us, that he'll restore us, that he'll create a new covenant community in our midst that faithfully follows him? And then in the next moment, talk about judgment and destruction. How? 
Well, God has a word for us through this minor prophet to shed light on these questions. We've been given a word so that we would know God more deeply, love him more intimately, and point people to his rescue more zealously. So would you read with me, please, Joel 3, 1 through 16. I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, in all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. Well, this is God's word. And we come and we first, we see at the very outset, at the very beginning, we see the character of the Lord. We see the God of justice in verses 1 through 8. Joel, in previously in the passages that we've just been in the last few weeks, he just looked out at a future day and he spoke of a time where the spirit of God would come and fall upon all people. God will not simply be with his people. He will be in them. He will be a part of them. And as other prophets added, the spirit would change, enable, empower, and restore God's people. 
these new covenant benefits would come through Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. But as Joel looked forward, declaring what would be someday, he only knew what would come. He didn't know how it would come, when it would come. He didn't know the full implications of God progressively bringing these promises to pass, initially with Jesus, and then one day fully and finally. I say that because verse 1 makes it clear that in the future day of the Lord that is being predicted, in those days, in that time when the Spirit comes, that is when restoration, restoration for Judah and Jerusalem will take place. And that is when this valley of Jehoshaphat, quite literally in its Hebrew meaning, the valley where Yahweh judges, that is when judgment will also take place. We'll speak of the timing of this in a moment, but Joel understood that when the spirit and restoration came, that's when judgment would come too. But notice why God is judging the world at large. We may ask why God would judge anyone. Verse 2, God is vindicating his people because the nations have done them harm and scattered them. Verse 3, the nations have wickedly cast lots for people, treated them as trading cards, as toys to gamble with. Even more disgustingly, the nations have traded boys and girls in order to fulfill their sexual desires and satiate their palates with wine. The text says. Verse 5 and 6 pointing to Tyre and Sidon as examples A and B of evil in the nations. They wanted that bag. And the nations stole gold and silver to line their pockets and temples. They sold people, treated the image of God in others lightly, subhuman in fact. We read this and we should, we should rightly recoil. The shock of it should unsettle us. This is terrible. How could they? Judgment should come for people who do things like this, we may say. Fast forward a few thousand years, and we come to 2023. Is the world around us any different? Do we not live in a world that devalues the image of God? In our American context... We are especially guilty for all the Christian influence we say we may have and all the advancement we may think we have in comparison to much of the world. We are number one as it relates to being the greatest importer of pornography and sex trafficking in the world. America is not so great in that regard, is it? No. Whether it's men, women, or children, the grossness, the grossness of Joel 3 still resides in the human condition today. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The nations in Joel's day manifested the same thing we see around us right now in our culture. Selling people, over-sexualizing the world, objectifying men, women, and children, abortion, sexual deviation, financial greed, selfish ambition, and a fundamental disdain for God, his ways, and his commands. This describes those in Joel's day and ours. But what is the primary focus of God's message through Joel in these verses? 
It's the specific and clarifying revelation of who God is and how he will act. More specifically, the goodness and justice of God is what is central to these verses. So look again, verse 1. When the day of the Lord comes, who? Who restores the fortunes of God's people? God does. In verse 2, who? Who will gather the nations to assess, judge, and hold them accountable for their evil actions? God will. Verse 4, who returns payment for the hurt they've brought on others? God does. Verse 7, who sovereignly works, stirs, and acts to bring repayment for evil? God does. The book of Joel is not about Joel himself. It's not about Judah. It's not about the unbelieving nations. And the book of Joel is certainly not about you and I. We are brought again and again to the very character of God and shown his beauty. He rescues. He is just. He is good. God's character is central and primary. It is God who brought the locusts to judge his people and bring about repentance and restoration. And it is God who promises a future day of complete satisfaction that you can have small glimpses of in this life as you cling to Jesus. And it is God who is judge. And in the final event of the day of the Lord, he will settle all accounts and make all things right, Joel says. Verses 1 through 8 points to the character of God. These verses remind us in the midst of a broken world that evil will not go unpunished. So a a couple points of application for you and I to wrestle with. First, as God has done through his messenger Joel, we too should look at our lives, our church, and the world around us and call a spade a spade. We should refuse to turn a blind eye to the sins of God's people. And we should be the first to admit that we personally need the change. And as we look inward, only then are we able to look outward without hypocrisy. Joel was able to communicate a hard message about the evil world and culture around him. He had credibility because he had first faithfully spoken a hard message about the evil of God's people. Because Judah, Tyre, Sidon, they didn't look much different. Many of the same sins. So, question, how and when do we speak of the evil around us in our day? We do it consistently. We tell the Christian and the skeptic there is a valley of Jehoshaphat. There is a valley of judgment that we will all be brought to. We tell the Christian and the skeptic that our playing loose with the image of God is wicked. When we don't protect children, when we objectify men, women, and children sexually, when we joke about it, when we engage in it, when we pursue greed, when we live for self, when we dismiss God's character and ways, as Joel says in verse 7, There is a repayment on our head. There is a judgment that will come. So boldly, courageously, righteously, and graciously 
We speak and live against evil. That's an easy application from Joel 3. But second, in these verses, we see that God is just. That he'll hold evil accountable. And you may believe that. And you may sew it on a pillow. But we have to ask, when is that empirically observed and fulfilled? Certainly not now. There's a lot of wickedness that happens, a lot of evil, a lot of unjust things that happen, and they are never accounted for in this life. Joel is looking forward to the day of the Lord that has been, as we've said for two chapters now, it's been initiated, it's already begun on the cross of Christ, where judgment and mercy were cracked open. But this day of the Lord is not yet fully realized. And that means that you and I, we are left here in the lives that God has given us. We reside in a broken world, do we not? We continue in a time and place to experience evil. And that evil is often not settled and taken care of the way that we want. So Joel 3 forces us to remember that ultimate justice... Ultimate healing, it will not come in this life. Not ultimately, not fully. Whether it's the corruption we see around us, the taking of loss and the loss of life, the fracturing of relationships, or the physical, mental, financial, and emotional suffering we experience at the hands of others, our great hope is not our best life now. No. That's reserved for the life to come. The fullness of God's character and promises will be embraced and relished when the day of the Lord comes. So whether you are old or young, with Joel, let us look forward. Through the lens of Christ, through the lens of our pursuit of justice now, through our understanding of how the gospel changes things now and forever, let us look to a future day. A future day in which final justice and peace comes. So my friends, whatever you are going through, whatever you are facing, whatever evil that you see in your own heart or the world around you, take courage. As one song puts it, it won't be long. Glory awaits. And we see immediately how we are called in the Christian life to attention. In one sense, yes, we are to speak and live against evil. And in another sense, we are to trust the Lord's good, sovereign care and justice. He will bring it about ultimately, not us. And that's quite a tension to live in. God help us. But we don't just see this God of justice, this one who brings ultimate accountability. We see in our passage those that are at war against God in verses 9 through 16. So going back to our main question, we're sitting here wondering, as Christians, how do we understand God's judgment on the world? We've seen God's good and just character to respond and to curb evil and bring restoration. This section, these verses, shed light on the nations themselves, their posture, and ultimately their heart that is set against God. And that fundamentally is the crux of the issue, isn't it? Their evil ways, their lack of treasuring the image of God, their cruelty, their sin, their selfishness, their setting themselves up as king of their own lives, it reflects the true condition of their heart. 
a heart that is at war against God. Verses 9 and 10 in our passage depict the nation's heart pretty vividly. Declaring, consecrating themselves for war, preparing mighty men, drawing near, turning plowshares into swords, hooks into spears, telling the weak to join in and identify and act as a warrior. There's no good in their warring against God. Verse 13, their evil is great, ripe, full, and pouring over. Verse 14, it's not just a few, it's multitudes, a vast number that have lived their lives in opposition against God. Now, for those of you who are here watching online and you may be considering Christianity, or if you know someone who's considering Christianity, in your most honest moments, this is really one of the watershed issues. You may, in your most honest moments, confess I don't want anyone over me. I don't want to be accountable to God, and I don't want guardrails on how to live my life. And very rarely have I personally met skeptics who have a true, consistent, and intellectual opposition to the claims of Christ. Many haven't taken the time to to study or combat them either. The, The key concern is an emotional one. The key concern is one of authority. I'd rather be my own authority. And if I'm honest, I'm at war with the idea of God ruling and reigning, they may say. I'm at war with the idea of following him because the way I've concocted it in my mind, it's antiquated, it's limiting, and it's unsatisfying. And immediately, all the Christians in this room realize that they're not much different than the skeptic, are we? Because there are areas of our life in which we have a war with God. For even the faithful follower of Christ, there's areas of our life where we would say, God, don't touch. I'll follow you here, here, and here. I don't want you ruling and reigning over here. We're not much different than the skeptic then, are we? If we only knew the truth of the satisfaction that Christ gives when we truly follow him. But I want to point out a couple items. One's kind of an interesting nugget, and one again is centered on the character of God. So for a moment, compare verse 12 and verse 14. The nations stir themselves up into a frenzy. They are at war with God, and they come into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's verse 12. Now looking down a couple of lines in verse 14, we see the multitudes in the valley of decision. It's a Jewish way to describe the same place in the same situation. The only decision being made is God's. A decision of judgment to those who have lived a life in war against him. So again, looking at who God is, what do we see of him in these verses? Verse 12. Yeah, the the nations come, but it is God who's sitting on the throne in charge, bringing clarity and finality. Verse 14, multitudes are there. But they have no decision. They have no say in God's actions or judgments. God's judgment is cosmic, verse 15. His roaring in verse 16 isn't some pompous show of power, but a clear warning that quakes through heaven and earth. Just as a lion roars to offer warning of his power, so God offers warning of judgment to those who make war against him. What's clear? What's clear in this passage of the character of God is that God is God. And we and the nations are not. 
We, make, we may make war and align ourselves against him, but it is he who is on the throne and in charge, Joel says. Here's how Shai Lin puts it. An artist worth your time describes the scene. Notice similar language to Joel and even Psalm 2. We'll put a slide up on the screen and Jared, go ahead and give me a beat. I'm just kidding. I'm... Here's, what, here's how Shai Lin puts it. The sovereign Lord, great I am, recognized the name. He's always on top of his game, a lion that simply cannot be tamed. And no, he is not restrained at all. Nobody can stop his reign. So why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? Their sin and offense is against his excellence and they're not ashamed. As though he's lacking the power to shackle them now in the hottest flames. And so they cock and aim. The target, his cosmic reign. That's like a kid with a super stoker trying to conquer Spain. Man thinks he's a pugilist trying to ball up his puny fist at the Lord who is ruling this. What's amusing is God just laughs like, who is this? Stupid kids who persist in foolishness. It's only by God's power you exist. Now you declare war on the Lord when before you were born he formed you in the uterus. Look, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He's established his king in Zion. And his name is Jesus. That's as close as you're going to get me to rap, by the way. (laughs) Those words, Joel 3, that poetic picture that Shailen just gave us is a poetic picture of a heart at war against God. And here is the natural, inward-looking question we have to ask ourselves this morning. Does this describe me? Is it possible, brothers and sisters, that we have adopted a warring posture against God's cosmic reign in our life? Or do you look out at a world that refuses to recognize God's name and character? Well, you do. Are you alarmed by foolishness? Yes, you are. Do you see yourself or the nations refuse to honor King Jesus and live, act, and speak in ways that are contrary to him? Yes, you do. So what do we do? Joel 3 tells us that we look to God's character and his promises. He is on the throne. We can trust he will handle the valley of decision, not us. We can allow God to be God and we can pursue holiness and righteousness in Christ and warn others of the roar that we read about in verse 16. The warning to the world that the day of the Lord is near. But lastly, in our passage, as we consider to understand how God judges the world, I want to hone in on the end of verse 16 as we see the refuge of Christ. Yes, the Lord is just and will bring true clarity and accountability on evil. But, but, in contrast, he is a refuge to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. As we've seen throughout Joel, the day of the Lord, it's two sides to the same coin. On one side, we see for God's people and the world, a potential darkness gloom, and judgment. But on the other side of that coin is the reality of the sweet reigns of God's blessing as the vine, fruit, 
and the joy of man is restored and satisfaction is fully known and experienced. This is hard language. And the language, the hard language of judgment may unsettle you. It may feel harsh. It may sound cruel. It may be a difficult truth to believe in. But I have good news for you. The two sides of the coin in the day of the Lord are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. The fury, wrath, the army of circumstance and judgment that loomed over Judah, that is predicted for those who are at war with God, that judgment fell upon Jesus as he died for the world. Look again at verse 15 of our passage. Verse 15, Joel says, The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. Can you think of a time where that was fulfilled, at least in part? On the cross. On the cross, Jesus had a valley of judgment kind of experience as darkness fell upon him. This informs how we view God's judgment of the world and the nations. The judgment of God fell upon Jesus for a sinful humanity. For those even who had made war against him. For those who were far off from the covenants and the promises of God. Jesus, in his great love for the world, takes on the sins of his people and suffers in their place. And any who would cling to him. Any who would turn from their hatred of God's character and ways. Any who would see that the evil described in Joel 3 resides in their thoughts, their words, their deeds, in their very heart. Any who see their need of hope, restoration, forgiveness. Any who see that they themselves need refuge, strength, and satisfaction. Any who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and trust in his character and work to you. To you belongs, verse 16. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of refuge. Safety, forgiveness, and a change in judgment are found in Christ. If you stand in your own righteousness, if we do that, if we stand in our own good works... We won't be protected and we will face the judgment that we're warned of. Jesus suffered darkness and he entered the valley of judgment and he died for you. And the reason he is a refuge is because he is a living, working, loving Savior today. His resurrection and conquering death in sin is what provides you and I access to him and a new heart and a new life ourselves to you belong the promises of Joel in Christ. And as we heard last week, the Spirit of God will pour into our heart, our soul, and our life, and we will be changed now and forever. We, we, we will all be welcomed into the kingdom of God now, and already we will get a taste of heavenly realities, and we will know it fully one day with Him in eternity. So what now? Jesus is the fulfillment of the two sides of that day of the Lord coin. He fulfilled the judgments and the restoration that would come. What do we do now? Well, do we simply just come on a Sunday and we sit and rejoice in these things? Well, should we mock 
the world around us for their evil? Should we complain? Should that, is that what we should do? Do we come here on Sunday morning to remind ourselves that heaven awaits and good thing we're on the right side of the tracks? Is that what we should do? Does our refuge and belonging to the kingdom of God, does our understanding of the judgment of God on the nations and the world, does it spur us on to do anything? Well, the answer quite simply is yes. Tomorrow's Monday, you know. You and I will go live the life that we've been given, knowing these truths Knowing the two sides of the coin, knowing about judgment and refuge, knowing about the work of Christ, we live on mission. What's the mission? Now that the Spirit of God has been poured out on us, now that we are new, new covenant recipients of grace from Jesus' own lips, in Acts 1, we read this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just so you know, Brainerd, Minnesota, Baxter, ends of the earth. The reason you and I have not been beamed up to heaven yet, have you ever asked yourself that? God, I have trusted in you. I believe you are the sovereign creator of the world. I believe that I live in a broken, sinful world and I'm part of the problem. You've changed me. I've clung to Jesus. He is the two sides of that coin, judgment and restoration. All right, I'm ready. Beam me up. Do you know why that hasn't happened? Because God has given you a life to leverage for his kingdom. God calls us in light of judgment, in light of grace, to contribute to this great work of lifting high the name of Jesus, bringing great honor and glory to his name as we declare that his day is coming soon. So we come even on a Sunday. We come and we pray for God to make this happen now. Pray for heaven to come down. But we don't just pray on Sundays. We give of our money to see the gospel proclaimed to our community and to the ends of the earth as we send out missionaries. We come on a Sunday and we sing and we declare God's character and beauty. We sit under his word to know and follow him intimately. And then we go to work tomorrow, not simply to collect money, retire, and set off into the sunset. But we live all of life. We go to work, we raise our children, we provide safe homes, we leverage our skills, our hobbies, and our gifts, and our resources. Why? To bring co-workers, family members, friends, and even enemies to an opportunity to see Christ as the refuge which he offers us in the gospel. So whether you are 5, 15, or 85, I think I got everyone in that. Regardless of the season of life you are in, consider right now how the Lord may be asking you to bring about change in the lives of those around you, in our community, in our state, and in our country. We desire a change in judgment, a change of heart. It's no accident that one of the core values that we've derived from the scriptures here at Lakewood is intentional outreach. 
Joel 3 is the reminder that our lives are to be marked by intentional outreach, not just by living the gospel, but by speaking it. If you and I go out in the lives that we've been given, and we know those two sides of the coin, we know about judgment that comes to the nations, we know that refuge that is available in Christ, and we don't speak it, then we are being unfaithful to the mission that Christ has given us. Acts 1, we have been given a mission to proclaim and live his gospel to the nations. Who are you discipling? Not who are you complaining about. Not what are you wishing would happen. Maybe for a second, turn off the TV. Turn social media off. Invite your neighbor into your home and disciple them to be changed by Christ, and then you'll start to see real change. We've been called to a mission, my friends. So may the Lord do it. God's just character, the warring of the nations against his character, and the refuge of Christ, well, it informs our communion time this morning. Uh, I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward. Joel 3 preaches communion. And you might not catch that immediately, but communion, as we practice it here at Lakewood, is a remembrance of the work of Christ. Not a remembrance of how wicked the world is. We know that. Communion is a remembrance of what Jesus has done to curb wickedness. The communion is a remembrance that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to change wicked hearts, to bring those who were far off near. Joel 3 is the reminder that God is just and he will hold people accountable. There is a valley of Jehoshaphat. And when we take that bread and that juice, we are reminded that we have a refuge. We will enter that valley of Jehoshaphat. We will. And we will be protected in the refuge of Christ. Oh, he's good. So as we've done, I want to invite you, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are imperfectly clinging to this refuge, if you are following him, if you believe he is Lord, if you were once far and you made war against God, but now you love him and are trying to follow him, this meal is for you. If you have declared the Lord on your, of your life, take this in remembrance of what he's done on your behalf. If you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, if you see that you are at war with God, if you see that you've been unwilling to make him Lord over the things that you know you should, allow this to pass. Allow this to be a time of reflection in which you see your need for Christ. Communion is a kind gift to us because there are some days when we look at the evilness in us and around us and we say, God, what are you doing? God, don't you see? Won't you curb wickedness? Won't you bring justice? Joel 3 says he will. And communion reminds us that our Lord received judgment and offers restoration. Uh, Pray with me. And then I'll explain how we'll take communion this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the work of Christ who fulfills both sides of that day of the Lord coin.
Thank you, God, that we can remember the one who took on judgment in our place. Thank you, God, that we can proclaim to an onlooking world around us that there is hope, that there is change, that wickedness will be held accountable for. And we're grateful that Christ can offer what we need, peace and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you to stand and we're going to sing a song together. If you are new or visiting here uh, and you have never come forward to take communion, what we'll do is we'll ask that you come down the center aisles. On the sides, you'll come down the center. In the middle, you'll come down the center. And then you'll exit on the outside of wherever you are. Feel free to take communion uh, as you receive it up front or bring it back to your seat to take it with a loved one. If there's someone around you who is not able to come up and take it, please do us a favor and bring them uh, the elements. Please come forward as we sing.